Welcome to another Sunday morning sermon from Marysville Christian Church. We're glad you're here joining us on this journey to learn more, love more, and look more like Jesus. We invite you to grab a cup of coffee and a Bible as we dive into God's Word. One of the more recognizable and reassuring scriptures in the Bible is Psalm 23. The Lord's my shepherd, I shall not want. Some of us may remember seeing that as a picture on the wall of our family's home, maybe on grandma's pillow, crocheted, or a, a throw on the, on the couch. Growing up, the typical portrayal was the stained glass window in the church that, that I grew up in. looked like this. Well-groomed, washed, you know, everything's calm, everything's in place. Jesus is a bit frail, but, you know, everybody's at peace. The reality of our life, though, kind of indicates that we need a good shepherd that looks more like this. We're in trouble again. We've fallen off the cliff again. And one more time, we need help. For somebody to come rescue us and it's a little tough after you climbed halfway down the side of a cliff to maintain that polished look of the stained glass window but you see our mental image of Jesus as a good shepherd can affect our confidence in following him that's why I'm kind of thinking that Psalm 23 would be a lot more reassuring to us if our perception of Jesus looked more like this <laughs> Angie does amazing work with Photoshop, and so I posed earlier this week, and she photoshopped. No. Nowhere near. But you know, this image of Jesus is not that much of a stretch, because we know his, his father here on earth was Joseph the carpenter. And the most accurate translation of that type of carpenter was not the, the fine, you know, sanding, varnish, and varnish, and varnish, and varnish, finish carpenter. No, Joseph was more like a lumberjack. He was, a, he was someone who worked in the rough timber. So before you had him make that little cradle, he had to go out and cut down the tree and plane it down. And, and so if that's the kind of home he grew up in, the idea of Jesus looking like that really isn't that much of a stretch and when David wrote Psalm 23 it was a reflection of his own days as a shepherd now you know we've talked about different images of a shepherd you know from the stained glass pretty frail peaceful image to the rescuer on the side of the cliff to the shepherd that could handle anything or anybody but you know, our image of a shepherd is, uh, that David spoke of is probably kind of distorted by even a, little, even a little VBS song. You know, there was a little boy named David. He lived by a babbling brook. Yeah. I'll finish it for you later. <laughs> Got a CD coming out. Uh, I know, MP3. Uh, but the idea, though, is that our image can be distorted as well. Listen to how David reassured his king that he wasn't afraid to go out and face Goliath 
based on his own shepherding experience. It, it's in, in 1 Samuel 17, verse 34 and following, he says, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. Catch this. Now, this is a long way away from, you know, little kid playing in the dandelions with the lambs. When a lion or bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, don't miss this part. I went after it, David says. And I struck it and rescued the sheep from its mouth. Now, okay, I get the idea of picking up a rock and chucking it at something while I hide behind a tree. But then David says, and when it turned on me, you and I, if we were writing our autobiography, would probably phrase it like this, I outran it. <laughs> David persuades the king, I'm not afraid to face Goliath because when it turned on me, I seized it by its hair and struck it and killed it. I, <laughs> that's a different image of David. And it certainly is a different image of a shepherd. But when David refers to the Lord as his shepherd, no doubt he's thinking of somebody who isn't afraid of anything. You see, the shepherds that, that David was, was raised with, the shepherds who trained him, were survivalists. For those of you older in the crowd, they were the John Wayne Cowboys. For those of you a little younger, they were the SEAL Team Six. For those of you younger, they were the Avenging Team, the Avengers. But they were the survivalists who who slept outside, who foraged for their own food, and who were not afraid to hunt down predators and engage them in hand-to-hand -hand combat. They lived and survived in a real world where other people depended on them. And that's the mental image that David has of the kind of God that he served when he was inspired to write Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. No wonder he was convinced he'd have everything he needed if the shepherd looked like buff Jesus, right? He makes me lie down in green pastures. I mean, who am I to argue with this guy, right? He leads me beside still waters. Why would I ignore him? He restores my soul. Why be anxious when this is the kind of guy who's on guard duty at night? He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Now that's how a typical translation of that phrase reads. But there's another version that says it this way. And after looking into it, I think it's a little more accurate. He leads me in the, in the right path for the sake of his reputation. Hmm. I mean, who's going to hire a shepherd who loses the flock all the time to predators? 
And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he says, I'll fear no evil. For you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And, you know, we think of this little shepherd's crook, you know, that you can maybe snag him and pull him back from the edge of the cliff. But it's not just that shepherd's. It's not just that shepherd's crook. It's also, he says, your rod. Think of it as a baseball bat. You're Louisville slugger. What you have beside the bed to protect you if you don't have a license to carry. Your billy club comforts me. This shepherd instills security when things go bump in the night. And you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. When we're looking over our shoulders, a little uncertain about, really, here, now, this, this is where you want to have a picnic? Have you seen what? I heard the growl. I, I heard the roar of the, now, here? And yet he says, you anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. How could it not, right? And I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Well, who would ever want to leave this shepherd's care? No wonder Satan wants to get into our head and affect our thinking, like Brian talked about earlier in, in you know, our, our communion time. He wants to affect how we think. He wants to worm into our head, not just with songs like Dancing Queen, which I heard again this week. <laughs> I, I knew I was fully prepared to walk up and hear Dancing Queen come over the speakers just as a joke. But, you know, Satan wants to get in our head because if he does, he can convince us to surrender our seat at his table. He has to create doubt in us about God's reliability. Can we really count on God when we need Him? He has to create doubt in our value and our worth to Him. I mean, why would He even bother coming after me when I lose my way? You know, He's got 99 others to take care of. Why would He bother with me? But that can only happen if we exchange the truth of God for the lies that Satan wants us to believe about God. Satan wants to get into our head and turn our focus and our attention to what we want instead of how God provides for us with what we need. He wants to turn our attention to our exhaustion and away from the rest that he knows how to give us. He wants to turn our attention from our instinctive fears instead of how he restores us and gives us peace. He wants to turn our attention to the brokenness of our spirit and away from how he restores us in ways that were beyond our comprehension. He wants us to start second-guessing our direction instead of trusting God's path. He wants, us to, he wants us to focus on how dark and dangerous this chapter, this valley, this passage of my life is instead of his ability to protect. He wants us to focus on the risk of the moment and the threat of my enemies instead of his protection and his provision. And in doing so, he will, he will 
encouraged me to focus on my own fear of the future instead of how he's continually blessed us all the days of my life. Well, that's just dumb, right? I mean, how, do, how does Satan get into my head so easily? Apparently, I've got automatic double doors that he can just drive right through. It's typically explained this way in 1 John 2.16, the lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. A combination of the New Living Translation and the Voice Translation would phrase it this way. Here's how Satan so easily gets into my head. The world offers you a craving for physical pleasure. I mean, I like what I like, right? You know, have you seen that one commercial now with the guy that looks like his dog sitting on a bench? You know, they look just like each other, and the dog starts scratching himself, and he starts scratching himself. You know, same type of thing. You know, it's like, oh, that feels good. Yes, 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 you know. That's what we want. We have that craving for what feels good and a craving to possess everything that we see. Somehow that just communicates more effectively to me than the lust of the eye. No, and the lust of the flesh. I, I, I want to possess it. And then there's that pompous superiority once we do. Look what I've got. Look at mine. Look at how important I am. Look at how successful I am. And he says none of these, none of these things come from the Father. Well, then where does it come from? Our challenge is to recognize those access points that Satan exploits to steal our seat at the table. Here are some of the typical lies that Satan uses. One of the first ones is envy. There's a better seat at a better table. Why do you want to stay here? And it's true, in Psalm 23, Jesus promised an abundant life, and David describes it that way, and yet... Satan tries to create doubt and dissatisfaction. It's kind of like the, the motto of Marysville, where the grass is always greener. It's that sales pitch of why be happy with what you have? Why be content here? Look around. There's something better than what God offers you. And that's why Satan uses this typical lie of envy, envy to convince us, you know, my life would be better if I, I'll let you fill in the blank. For some, that blank gets filled in with, my life would be better if I didn't have them in my life. So walk away. My life would be better if I didn't have so much responsibility. My life would be better if I didn't pay my mortgage. My life would be better if, well, it, it just run. And it's based in envy and jealousy and greed and topped off with some sprinkles of self-pity. I could be happier if I had. I could be happier if I could only... That's how he enticed Eve in the garden, right? 
I mean, it's the Garden of Eden, for goodness sake. You've got everything that God could know, could know that you would need, and it's right there for you to enjoy. And yet, he creates envy in Adam and Eve and convinces them life could be better if you ignored God and pursued what you really wanted for yourself. That's the way that he approached Lot when his uncle took him up on the hillside so they could survey all the, the surrounding territory. He says, you pick where you want your family to go. I'll take what's left over. He looks around, and he sees a lush green valley around him, and he says, you know, that looks pretty good to me. I think my folks will settle there. What's, what's that village called over there? And, and there's one beside it. What, what's that called? Sodom and Gomorrah. Yeah, okay, it'll be, it'll be fine. Because look how great it looks. It's the same thing that... It's the same worm that got into the head of David. As he toyed with the possibilities of what he could have with Bathsheba, another man's wife. You see... Envy and jealousy and greed and self-pity all rolls together. And Satan works into our head as we look at co-workers and say, you know, this guy cuts corners. He, he never does his job. He always piles on and tags along on what somebody else has done for him. And he's the one that gets the bonus, not me. Why don't I, why am I beating my head against the wall? Why am I doing my job this way when I could do it that way? Did you see the vacation pictures they posted? Why don't we ever get to go on vacation like that? Well, you know, maybe if we cut back on our giving, we could afford to do that when it came time for a vacation. Satan uses a lie of envy to convince us to walk away from our seat at the table. But he also uses this lie. Failure. You're a loser. You don't deserve this seat at the table because you're not good enough to sit at the table with God. Satan worms his way into your head and he haunts you with the memory of every stupid decision you've ever made. And there are plenty to fill our head because we make plenty of dumb choices, don't we? And the memory of those haunts us and entices us, you don't belong here. Walk away now before he notices you. It's going to be embarrassing when you have to be thrown out in front of everybody. Just like, just, just walk away. Just like your parents walked away. Maybe just like your spouse walked away. Maybe just like your employer walked away when they shut down and opened up someplace else. And didn't invite you to come along. And you start to acquire this Winnie the Pooh, Eeyore type attitude. It'll never work. But the good shepherd promises to restore our soul. Thank God I'm defined by his scars, not my scars. This is the value of knowing the truth of God's word. 
This is why it's important to teach our kids what the Word of God says. This is why it's important for us to learn and read the Word of God, whether it's in a weekly or daily Bible reading or a verse that comes up because it's scheduled on our text to remind us of what God says instead of what Satan would deceive us with. For example, Isaiah would remind us of this in chapter 53, verse 6. We don't have to give up our seat at the table because he says, we all have wandered away like sheep. Each one of us have gone our own way. But the Lord has has put on him, speaking of his Messiah, the punishment for all of the evil we've done. We don't have to give up our seat at the table out of embarrassment and hope that, you know, I, he'll discover who's here. He'll see that I snuck in the side door, crawled in a window, or looked when he was looking the other way that I made my way into heaven. No, he knows we're there. He knows we don't deserve to be there. That's the point of Jesus. You don't have to give up your seat at the table because of what Paul says in Romans 5, verse 8. God showed his great love for us. Even though we've sinned, even though we've all wandered off, even though we've all ignored him and saw other green grass someplace else, that's why he sent his son Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Don't give up your seat at the table because... As he says in Romans 8, verse 1, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You don't have to surrender your seat because you're a failure, because you've lost, because you've made poor choices. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new, a brand new person inside. I love that phrasing. His old life is gone. A new life has begun. You see, when you know what God says, it's a lot easier to ignore what Satan is whispering. When you know what God has spoken in His Word, it's a lot easier to ignore what Satan screams into your conscience trying to create a, a third way into our head, fear. You may have a seat for now, but it's only temporary, he would convince us. Satan will plant the seed of doubt that it's only a matter of time, Cinderella, before the clock strikes and your time runs out. And yet the good shepherd promises to walk us through the dark valleys. There's no reason to bolt and run. He knows the right path, even if it is a dark, scary path that we can't yet see the light at the end of that tunnel. When God had Moses lead his people out of slavery in Egypt, they got boxed in at the Red Sea. The Red Sea was in front of them. The Egyptian army was behind them. And there were plenty of people who were second-guessing Moses and his confidence in God. Why, they said, why did you leave us out of Egypt? 
Why did you bring us to this point? We're now going to die a violent death here in the desert, and we could have just died a peaceful death as slaves in Egypt. And then, when they thought it was hopeless, God revealed a way through what they saw as a dead end. In Psalm 77, verse 19, he sings the praises of God this way, of that moment, your road led through the sea. Your pathway through the mighty waters Catch this, a pathway that no one knew was there. And some of us spell it right <laughs> instead of just copy and paste. And now that you focused on that, <laughs> let it sink into your heart how easy it is for us to forget God's presence when we think there's no way out. He knows the path forward. After the prophet Elijah's death, Elisha was next man up. God's people were at war, and Elisha was protecting them with the guidance of God, telling them, go here, don't go there, hide here, go here, this direction instead. And the enemy who was trying to attack God's people was furious because somebody kept tipping them off about their location and exposing their plans. And he knew that there was a mole. He knew there was a leak. He knew somebody was... He demands answers, and he's told, it's Elisha. He's the one who's warning them of our ambush. And so the king decides to put an end to that once and for all. Before I can, before I can conquer this, this nation, I have to go after Elijah, Elisha. If Elisha knew everything that was going to happen, wouldn't Elisha have known that too? saying sometimes our bright ideas aren't that bright and so he sends his army to surround the place where Elisha is staying and the story is told in second Kings chapter 6 of how his Elisha's servant gets up one morning and he goes outside and he looks around and they're surrounded he runs back inside Elisha what are we going to do and Elisha tells him in verse 16 of second Kings 6 don't be afraid. The army that fights for us is larger than the one against us. And at that point, his servant's looking around thinking, army that fights for us? What are you smoking? You know, are you dreaming? At least that's what we would be thinking, right? And then Elisha prays to God, Lord, Open my servant's eyes and let him see. The story goes on to say that the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw that the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. They had always been there. The servant 
just didn't see what God knew and what God was doing. That road that led through the sea, the pathway that led through the mighty waters, the pathway that no one knew was there, it was the same for Elisha and his servant. And yet the story that Satan uses to get into our head and get into our heart is never the whole story. Elisha's servant could only see that they were surrounded, cut off, and trapped. God's people, when they were complaining to Moses, coming away from Egypt and being stopped, dead end at the Red Sea, boxed in, they could only see that we're about to die. And what they couldn't see was that God had their enemy surrounded. You see, if he's able to persuade us that we could have more without God, if he's able to persuade us that we need to be afraid, then we start to develop a, a fourth thing that, that Satan can use to worm his way into our head, and that's a victim mentality. Poor me. Everyone's against me. You start to get paranoid. And then th th there comes after that, that defiance. Well, I just got to do what's right for me. Nobody else is going to do it. I got to look out for number one. A victim mentality. A good friend of ours for a long time, uh, Kay, that some of you ladies have spent time with at, at some of the women's retreats, used to struggle with alcoholism. Well, actually, it was no struggle. She just didn't fight it. You know, she just gave in. And she says that she always knew when somebody who was supposedly recovering was about to be in trouble. Because poor me, poor me, poor me soon became poor me another. And that's how Satan persuades us to surrender our seat at the table. He can't steal our seat from us. He can't force us out of our seat. But what he can do is to try to entice us and convince us to get up and walk away on our own. Nobody likes me. I know. Finish the song. Everybody hates me. I'll just go eat worms. <laughs> Nobody wants me here. Nobody notices me. Nobody ever talks to me. Everybody ignores me. And when they are talking, they're looking at me out of the corner of their eye. I know they're talking at me. And we get defensive and our walls go up and our guns are ready for a preemptive strike because nobody's going to hurt us again like I got hurt before. And yet, by contrast, the good shepherd leads us by still waters and makes us lie down in lush, green, pastures he's convinced God's got our back he's for us so who could possibly be against us that would be stronger open my servant's eyes let him see what you're doing you can't receive or give with a clenched fist so take off the boxing gloves 
Stop worrying about not having enough. Your cup will overflow because of His generosity. You see, here's what we bring to the table when we're afraid that we're not getting our share. When we feel like we've got to look out for ourselves because nobody else is going to do anything for us. A life pursuing the lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life starts to look like this description in Galatians 5. Corrupt sexual relationships. Impurity. Or immorality. Unbridled lust simply means there's no control over the lust that you're feeling or pursuing. You're starting to worship something other than God and willing to do whatever it takes, cast whatever incantation you can think of to get what you want. That is referred to as witchcraft. Why would you do that? What's the result of that? Your life is pretty much consumed by hatred and arguing and jealousy and anger and selfishness. Contentiousness, division, envy of others' good fortune. Why? Because i got to get mine. And I'm jealous that you've got yours and I don't have mine. And I know you probably got yours in a way that kept me from getting mine. Why can't I have what everybody else has got, God? Well, if I can't have it, then maybe I can just numb myself to my craving for it. Which is why we end up with drunkenness, Constantly carousing, trying to satisfy other shameful vices. That's the life that we bring to the table. That's the life that Satan persuades us is better than the life that God offers us when we follow Christ as our shepherd. In verses 22 and 23 of Galatians 5, he says the result of that, that life, the outcome of that life, that comes from following the Holy Spirit in our lives, instead of hatred and arguments and jealousies and angers and selfishness and division and envy and all of that, instead of that, there's love and joy. And because of that, why would I give up? Right? And because I enjoy that kind of life, I'm willing to share that with others. And so I learn to be kind. I learn to be good to others. And I do so because I'm willing to trust that God is able to do things that I can't even see. God's at work in ways I can't even imagine. And so because of that, even with the knuckleheads that try to cut me off in traffic, I learn to be gentle. 
and I surrender my craving to be the boss. And I learn to control my own desires. You see, regardless of what your life has been, regardless of what your life has become, the good news is we get to rewrite the story of our life based on His story of our life. Man, is that good news. David, why don't you and the praise team join me back up on stage. Paul would write to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. Do you not realize this, is, this about yourselves? Jesus Christ is in you. So don't give up your seat at the table because of his lies about envy and failure and fear and, and poor me. Ignore the thoughts of paranoia. Ignore the exasperation that you're consumed with because in Romans 8 verse 11 he says God has raised Jesus from the dead and if God's spirit is living in you he'll give life through that spirit that lives in you so you belong there you deserve that God has prepared that for you don't let the whispers of our enemy persuade you to walk away for the very next phrase in verse 12 is this we must not live the way our sinful selves want to live the way that Satan entices us will make us happier don't give up your seat at the table because as he says in verse 13 if you use the Spirit's help to stop doing the wrong things you do with your body you'll have true life I don't know what you've come with this morning I don't know what you're involved in I don't know what you're addicted to I don't know what you beat yourself up over but I do know this you know right and I do know this, we have a good shepherd that if we will allow him to help us, he will help us to stop what's killing us and convincing us to give the enemy our seat at the table. God's prepared a table for you. Even in the presence of your enemy, don't listen to his lies you belong at God's table. If you want to know more about why God would forgive us, if you want to know more about why God would welcome us into his presence, we'd love to have the opportunity to have that conversation with you in, in, in private. During the singing of this next song, an elder or a member of the praise team or prayer team will meet you privately in this prayer room to the side here. Just make your way to that room and, and we'll be happy to share the reason for the joy that we have, the convinced position that we've come to, that God has a new way that no one knew was there. Let's stand together. We hope you enjoyed today's message. If you'd like to learn more about Marysville Christian Church and connect with us, be sure to go to our website, marysvillechristian.org. If you are near the Marysville area, we would love to have you join us on Sunday morning. We have our Bible study classes at 9 a.m. and our regular worship service is at 10 a.m. 
Our address is 17,000 Waldorf Road, Marysville, Ohio, 43040. Our phone number is 937-642-9838. Email is office at marysvillechristian.org.